Well, good morning. You guys are chatty this morning. That's awesome. Uh, well, my name's Mark Porter. I'm the uh, executive pastor here at Live Oak. And uh, if I have not met you, we are really glad you're with us as we're closing out this series called Fight. And uh, this has been a really great series to be a part of. If you've missed any of it because of sickness or whatever reason, I encourage you to go back and watch it online. Some really good stuff. And in this series, we've just said, basically, we want you to pick a fight in 2018. We want you to pick a fight because some things are worth fighting for. And life is a battleground, not a playground. So in 2018, pick a fight. And we want you to fight for your faith because it requires faith for you to fight well. And it's been a challenging series for a lot of us. I want to just, I'm just going to tell you right up front, today's message is going to challenge you because it's challenged me as I prepared it. Um, and we're going to get really, really practical today about how we fight, how we interact with one another when we have arguments, disagreements, conflict, when someone hurts you or hurts someone around you. And so I want to ask you guys this question before we start. Do you fight for others or do you fight with others? So let me elaborate on that a little bit uh, have any of you had a really good fight lately? You don't have to elbow anybody nearby, but maybe had a hard conversation or, a hard, or an argument. Did you walk away from that argument and say, man, that person was so valued in that fight. Man, I feel like they were clo- we're closer together, we're closer to God because of the way that we handled that argument. Like, I honored them and they honored me and it was awesome. We're laughing because it doesn't happen. In fact, we are terrible at conflict. And I say we, we as human beings, but we as the church, Christian-type people, are some of the worst, right? But fighting matters deeply to God and should matter to us. Because relationships can be strengthened, God can be honored, reconciliation and restoration can happen. And if you're not a Christian this morning, I want to just tell you right up front, I'm going to be talking to Christian people mostly. But if you're not a Christian this morning, you're kicking the tires of faith, you're not sure about Jesus and all that stuff, that's great. I'm glad that you're here. You need to listen in too because the principles here will help you in all areas of your life in interaction. Here's what we know about fighting, about unhealthy adult conflict, whether it be in a marriage or at work or in friendships, whatever. That unhealthy conflict, unresolved conflicts result in significant psychological and physical damage to adults, primarily because of increased stress. Research tells us that we have increased digestive issues, increased risk of diabetes, increased cardiovascular issues, poor sexual and reproductive health, increased muscle pain, and increased rates of clinical depression because we don't fight well, because we don't handle conflict well. And it doesn't have to just be in a verbally abusive way. It could just be an unresolved tension that lives amongst us. It can also affect our families. Our kids specifically. That uh, Child psychologist research says that kids as, age, as low as age one are significantly affected when fights between parents are unresolved or unhealthy. 
where there's verbal or nonverbal hostility or just an overall tension in the household of unresolved conflict results in increased rates of depression, anxiety, and acting out. And this uh, impact actually magnifies as kids grow, especially into the teenage years. However, the good news is this, is that healthy fighting, compromise, problem solving, when positive feelings or affection are expressed during a fight or, or argument or conflict, it has the exact opposite effect. It has a very positive impact on our families and our relationships. So this should matter deeply to us because it affects us physically. It affects us psychologically. And if you're a Christian type person out there today, it has eternal impact as well. Did you know there's really just two broad ways that we can spread the gospel, that we can share the good news of Jesus to the world? The first way is we declare it, right? We say, hey, this is what God has done in my life. I was so far away from him, I rejected him, and yet someone extended a hand to me and I was reconciled to God, I was restored to God, he made me a new creation, gave me a new life. I experienced his grace and his mercy and his truth and it has transformed me and put me on a new path. We can share that story with other people. The other way that we can declare the good news is not just verbally, but how we live out our faith as a family of believers and how we interact with the world. When we are characterized by humility and purity and accountability, even discipline, how we reconcile, how we restore, and how we extend forgiveness tells God's story to our families, to our community, to our teams, to our friends, in our workplaces. How we confront, how we fight with one another matters deeply to God. And we're going to be in Matthew chapter 18 today primarily. I'm going to skip around a little bit. But we're going to be in Matthew 18. And it's called Matthew 18 through 20 is the, four, the fourth of five long discourses by Jesus. This one's called what theologians call the community prescription. And by the community, he means the community of believers. And, he, and this is the only place in the gospel the word ecclesia is used. Not ecclesia as in the church building or even the church organization. It is a community of believers, people who are followers, disciples of Jesus. This is the only place it's recorded that Jesus used these words. And so he is speaking to me and to you if you are a follower of Jesus this morning. Not just in this church, but in our city, in our nation, around the world, other believers. And he has a lot to say about how we handle conflict. And before I get into the specifics of how we fight, I want to say this right up front. Because of everything that's been going on in the news and in our world, with all the sexual harassment stories that have come out of Hollywood and in other places, and because of the abusive situation that's been in the news prominently because of the U.S. women's gymnastics, I want to say this before I get started. There are some relationships that can't be restored. Because it takes two. Statistics tell us that one in four women and one in six men have experienced some form of sexual abuse or molestation. And I want to tell you this morning, I do not believe for a second that God wants you to stay in that relationship. If you are in an unsafe place, as Doug mentioned several weeks ago, 
you've done everything ethically and morally, you need to flee. You need to get safe. And as a pastor of this church, and I think I speak for the leadership of this church when I say that we are committed to be with you. To encourage you, to support you, to comfort you, to protect you. We serve a God of grace. Yes, He extends mercy and forgiveness. We also serve a God of justice. And if laws have been broken, we should report that. But that we are here to walk with you. Whatever your need. So how do I fight well? How do I handle conflict? This is going to be a great message. Aren't you glad you came this morning? One of the elders joked with me this morning and said, hey, does Doug just give you the messages he doesn't want? (laughs) Probably. Guys, we, if we could just get this right, it could have huge impact. A huge impact on our marriage, on our parenting, on our communities, on our schools, on our teams. So let's just dive in. And what I want to do is I'm going to dive in. I'm going to tell you how to do it. That Jesus lays out a very specific process on how we reconcile. And then I'm going to talk about the heart behind it. Because to me, that's even harder sometimes. Is what our heart is in it. So here it is. Matthew 18, 15 through 17 says this. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. Some of your translations may say if they sin against you. Just between the two of you... And if they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take two or three others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church, the community of believers. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Remember, Jesus is talking insider to insider, follower of Jesus to follower of Jesus, okay? I'm going to qualify here by saying we can't expect outsiders to act like insiders, right? Someone who's not a follower of Jesus. However, I would argue that some of the principles will apply on how we value other people, how we approach other people. So here's Jesus' four-step process. First, he says this, confront them personally, privately, and timely. In a timely manner. Don't let it fester, but don't go in anger. Confront them personally, Privately and timely. This means you go with both grace, extending grace, but speaking truth. And here's what we do. We typically are good at one or the other, right? We'll just say, oh, well, boys will be good boys, and you know, maybe he won't do that again, or she won't say that about me again, right? Or we use truth like we use it like a baseball bat, Right? Truth without grace is brutality. And grace without truth is deception. You have to take both. You have to take both. This is also, and here, maybe I should say this too. You go personally, privately, first. That means you don't go tell a bunch of people, right? You don't get a lot of people on your side. You don't post something cryptically on Facebook about how you were wrong, right? Some of you are smiling because it's true. It happens, okay? That's why it's funny. Because we do one of two things when we are hurt. When someone, we see someone in a negative pattern or they have hurt us, right? We do one of two things. We either confront them in hatred or resentment to be right. I'm going to be right. 
or we just push it aside and don't want to deal with it. Both are unhealthy. Before I move on, I would just say, this is also not a license to confront someone about everything. There has to be a legitimate conflict. Okay? Here's what I mean. I'll give you a quick example of that. Uh, early in our marriage, many, I don't even know if she remembers this, but early in our marriage, we had a pretty tense conversation about whether you have a real Christmas tree or a fake Christmas tree. Okay? Because I thought only communists had fake Christmas trees. Okay? And so I did not bring in, here, go back, go back. I did not bring in two or three witnesses. Okay? We just dealt with it, and now we have a fake Christmas tree. Okay? <laughs> All right? I didn't need two or three witnesses for that. I was straightened out. Okay. So then, so basically you confront personally. If the person is unrepentant, repentance means that they turn around. They turn away from their sin pattern or, or, or they ask for forgiveness from you. Okay? Then you bring two or three witnesses to mediate, encourage, and help. This is not to team up on. Again, the goal is restoration and repentance. This is consistent with teaching from the Old Testament. This could be a faith friend, a small group member, a team leader, uh, another couple. Again, it's not for, for to team up on. It's for restoration of the relationship. And then it says to involve even more witnesses, involve the church, the bodies of believers. That doesn't mean you call your pastor. Maybe it does, but it could just be additional people from your small group. It could be additional people in your family who are, who are uh, faith believers. It is the community of believers. It's more witnesses, again, with the goal to help, help for restoration. Not to shame, not to humiliate. You're like, Mark, this just seems counterintuitive. They hurt me. They're in a sin pattern. They're doing something bad. It is. Take it up with Jesus. I don't know what to tell you. Because we, in our pride, right? We want to win. We want to win. We want to win. But for Jesus, the goal was not to win. It was to restore. And then the last thing he says is that if they will not repent, if they refuse to listen, then treat them as a tax collector. Basically, it's someone who has wandered away and who refuses to see the blind spot that has been shown to them. And you have all these witnesses who say, hey, you're not making a good decision, or you're hurting this person, or you're doing things to hurt yourself, or you're not, you're not doing things in accordance with the way what is God's best for you or for your family or whatever situation. And we still love them, we, we still try and uh, uh, call them back to something better, but essentially they have excluded themselves from the support, the encouragement, the training, the joy of a spiritual family because of their decisions. All you can do is what you can do. And what I would say is, even though this is for believers to believers, what if we made every effort with people like this? What if we cared so deeply about them that we wanted them connected to God? What if every relational confrontation, our focus was restoration? Because the question is this, do I want to be right or do I want relationship? 
Do I want to see the relationship strengthened? What do I want for me? What do I want for them? How do I want them connected to God? And some of you have seen this image before, this, this triangle. A lot of times it's used in, in uh, pre-marriage sessions and that kind of thing. And there's a husband and wife at the bottom. And the idea is that as they grow closer to God, they would grow closer together. This is true of any relationship that is connected to God through Jesus. Is that we want people to grow closer to God. And as they grow closer to God and are transformed by His love, by His truth, by His grace, we grow closer together. There's accountability. There's encouragement. There's shared burden. There's shared joy. Do I want to be right? Or do I want relationship? But sometimes all you can do is what you can do. Romans 12, 17 and 18 says this. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible... As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. As far as it depends on you, as far as it depends on you, have you done everything you can to reconcile, to restore, and to forgive? I've seen this play out. I've seen it done beautifully in a marriage that fell apart. There was infidelity by a husband. He broke a vow, a covenant. His wife approached him, confronted him. There was counseling. There was forgiveness offered. Other believers were brought into the situation to encourage, to hold accountable, to call for restoration. And yet there was unrepentance. And it was painful. And yet I can remember the wife distinctively saying, I just hope he's okay. I I worry about his connection to God. And it was so humbling to me because I was like, I just want to punch this guy. And yet she cared deeply, even though she had been wounded and hurt, she cared deeply about his connection with God. All you can do is what you can do. But as much as it depends on you, you cannot cannot make someone repent. That is their part. Our part is to restore and to forgive and to help along the way. So you thought that part was hard, okay? It's going to get really hard now, okay? Because before Jesus tells this four-step process, The very first part of Matthew 18, there's a question that's asked of Jesus. This is what's asked, Matthew 18.1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him and placed the child among them and said, Truly I tell you, unless you change... Just let that word sit in there just for a second. Unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven... Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. To change means to change your inner self. Our old way of thinking to be transformed, again, by the grace and truth and mercy of God. To realize what He had done for us. 
And we shake our heads at the disciples sometimes, but I think really we're not that different. Let's be honest. We compare ourselves. We're like, well, you know, I'm smarter than him. My husband's better looking than, than hers. My house is bigger. I'm a better teacher than that guy. We'd be done already. I was teaching on Sunday. Hit too close to home. But seriously, we do the same thing, right? We're always looking to be right, to be in a position of authority. And what Jesus is saying is you've got to humble yourself. See, the thing about humility is this, that a child is trusting, is humble, is forgiving. And in in Jesus' time, children had absolutely no rights, really no value until they could provide something to the family. Listen to this. They were utterly dependent. They were utterly dependent on the parent to advance his or her cause and help them acquire resources. Without Jesus, we are the same. We are deficient. So we must take a posture of a child. We must be humble, trusting, and forgiving because humility has to be our approach in a fight. To be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. And I'll be honest, that's not usually my approach. I want to get even. And yet when I step back and realize all that God has done for me and how I must have broken his heart and how many people I have hurt, it changes our approach. Humility, wanting what's best for the other person, wanting what's best for the relationship, wanting to see them connected to God and to God's people. And then right after that, he kind of talks about his heart, his goal, his hope in a fight. And he tells a parable. Matthew 18, 12 through 14. He says this, and we sang about this this morning. He says this, what do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about the one sheep Uh, the one sheep then about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones, little ones meaning disciples, followers of Jesus, should perish. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones, followers, should stumble away, should be tempted, should be led astray. He has commissioned us. If you are a follower of Jesus this morning, whether you're a member of this church or not a member of this church, but if you are a follower, if you are a Christ follower this morning, we are his ambassadors. We are his representatives to the world. And how we interact with one another has significant impact. And what he's saying is, hey, this is my heart. This should be your heart for those that wander. To call them back. This parable is also uh, shared in Luke 15. In Luke 15, it was about sheep that were not part of the flock yet, that were non-believers. This is about believers who have wandered away, who have been tempted. 
who've been prideful and ended up in dangerous, scary, unhealthy places. He has commissioned us to do everything possible to retrieve those who stray, who wander, as much as it depends on us. I wrote this in my notes. Is this my response when someone who is a Christ follower sins? When they sin against me, against my family, against my church? Do I have the same heart for them as my Father in heaven does? See, humility is our approach, but restoration is our goal in a fight. Restoration is our goal in the fight. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice, strive for full restoration, encourage one another, be of one mind, live in peace. And really, restoration is a two-part process. There's repentance where someone says, hey, you're right, I'm, I'm making bad decisions, or I've hurt you, or I've sinned against you, please forgive me, and they repent, they turn around, right? They, they change their direction, that's what repentance is. To come back to the flock. And then restoration is our part. As the church. And think about the definition of a restoration. It's the action of returning something to a former owner, place, or condition. To return to a former owner, place, or condition. How would I behave? How would I act? How would I relate if I wanted repentance, restoration, and connection to God and to His community? How would I approach conflict in my marriage with my kids in my workplace, even for people who aren't believers? How would I handle conflict? Oh, here's a good one on my kids' sports team or sports activities. If I knew I was being God's representative, of humility, love, and restoration. So then, right after this, Jesus lays out that four-step process. He says, be, you know, basically, he says, be humble. My goal is restoration, reconnection. Then he lays out the four-step process. And then right after the four-step process that we went through earlier, Peter asks a very obvious question. Probably on many of your minds. He says this, in Matthew 18. Next slide. There we go. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Now here's the deal on this. Old Testament uh, tradition or law was three times and you're out. Three times and you're out. So Peter was like more than doubling it. He's like, hey, look at me. I'm being, you know, I'm taking it up a notch. And what Jesus says is, the number doesn't matter. It's realizing how much has been forgiven in you. Because immediately after this, he launches into the parable of the unmerciful servant. And in that parable, I encourage you to read the whole thing. There's a servant who goes to his master. He owes 10,000 talents. That's 150,000 years to 200,000 years of wages, right? Probably looks like your taxes this year, right? It's unpayable in a lifetime. And yet the, 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 the servant says, I'll pay you back, I'll pay you back, just give me time. And the master says, no, I have canceled the debt. You don't owe me anything. Whoa. 
And then the, the servant goes away. That was good timing. No, 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 go back, go back, go back. He goes away and he runs into a fellow servant who owns a, owe, uh, owes 100 denarii. Basically 100 days wages. And he says, hey, you owe me this money. And he says, uh, well, just forgive me, you know, give me time. He says, no, and he strangles him and he has him thrown in jail. And the master finds out about this. Of course, the master in this scenario is God and, you know, you can put yourself wherever you need to in the story. But it says this, next slide. Then the master called the servant in, you wicked servant. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I have had on you? See, forgiveness is essential if you are going to win a fight. And that is hard. See, forgiveness is not a choice. I mean, not an emotion, it's a choice. Let me say that again. Forgiveness is not an emotion. It's a choice because in our emotion, we do not want to forgive. When we are hurt, or someone hurts someone around us. But forgiveness means this, basically to cancel the debt. That you don't owe me anything. That thing you took from me, the way you hurt me, you don't owe me anything. The thing about forgiveness is it's very simple, but it's really, really hard. It's really hard. But here's the thing about forgiveness. Forgiveness is unlocking the door to set someone free and realizing it was you. So you feel like you're letting somebody else off the hook, but really what you're doing is you're letting yourself out of the cage. You're canceling the debt. It frees you. C.S. Lewis says it this way, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. Realizing how deficient we are in the presence of God, that we couldn't get right with Him, and yet He loved us and died for us even though we were sinners. We are all deficient. And really what this, what this does is when we do this, when we focus, when we come in humility, when we focus on restoration, when we want what's best in the relationship for, for the other person, we get to tell God's story to the world. Because do I want to be right or do I want to relay God's redemptive message to the world? Do I want to tell God's story? Because when I extend mercy, when I speak truth and grace at the same time, when I hold people accountable, but want what's best for them, and then extend mercy and forgiveness, you have an opportunity in your relationships with one another and in the world to tell God's redemptive plan. And that, we are His plan A. Broken, messed up people. We are his plan A to reach other broken, messed up people. To tell his story to the world. So do I want to be right? 
Or do I want to see the relationship grow, strengthened? Do I want to be right? Or do I want to see restoration? Someone connected to God and thriving. Ultimately, do I want to be right? Or do I want to tell God's redemptive plan to the world? And what I want to tell you guys is this is hard. That I am growing in this. That as I am understanding my deficiencies and how much grace God has lavished on me, it changes me. That I'm being transformed by His love and His mercy. And I pray the same for you. And as I close, the last thing I would say is, what if you were on the other side of this? What if you had done something that you regretted? You had sinned against somebody, hurt them, and they came to you wanting what was best for you. Wanted you restored, wanted you connected to God, wanted to offer forgiveness. How would you receive it? They spoke truth. Sometimes that's hard to hear. But extended grace. How would our marriages be different? How would our workplaces, how would our schools, how would our communities, how would the politics be in our country? This has huge impacts for us on how we interact with one another and how we tell the world about a God who is crazy about them and about us. That he wants no one to perish. Let's stand for closing prayer. Heavenly Father, your words are as relevant today as they were when they were first penned and first spoken. This is a hard teaching. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't feel, in some ways, it doesn't feel right. And yet, when I'm aware of your life-giving grace and mercy in my life, it humbles me. I pray that we would be transformed by your truth and by your grace and by your mercy. That we would humbly interact, that we would humbly reconcile, that we would humbly forgive one another as you forgave us. That we would be mindful of that as we interact with others every day. We thank you for Jesus who reconciled us to you. And we pray all this in his name. Amen. Hey, thank you for being here. If you'd like to visit, I'll be down in the front. Have a good afternoon. All of the best laid plans of mass and men so often go astray. And all the plots and schemes of kings and queens shift like the wind that blows away.